Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. The Limitless podcast was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community that show that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. It is Blindness Awareness Month in October, and we are so excited to kick off this month with a really fascinating topic for you all. We're talking about guide dogs, but not in the way that we've talked about them before. We've talked a lot about how to get a guide dog and what it's like to use a guide dog, some of the rules about guide dogs. But today we're actually going to talk with a guide dog trainer about how dogs are trained, how they're matched. And we have with me today, Keisha, who's a guide dog user to be part of this uh, conversation. And you have invited a very special guest to join us, Keisha. So first of all, welcome to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks um, for being here. I am really excited about this. Uh, I'm really excited to introduce Sarah and Dano to you all today. Uh, she is very dear to my heart and you're going to learn why very soon. Um, so Sarah, please introduce yourself. Hey folks, I'm Sarah. It's, I was going to say good to meet you all, but it's good to meet you all virtually. This is awesome. I'm so happy to be here. I am a former guide dog mobility instructor for the Seeing Eye in Morristown, New Jersey. And I recently transitioned out of that job and am looking to break into tech for software engineering, much less exciting, but <laughs> I had a really amazing time while I was at the seeing eye and sorry, you might hear my puppy in the background. Uh, I had a really amazing time at the seeing eye. I met a lot of incredible people, Keisha being one of them who got one of my, and I can say this now, one of my favorite dogs that I ever <laughs> trained. And I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, so my, uh, I have a, my guide dog, um, his name is Bo and he was, yes, trained by Sarah and uh, also my favorite boy. Um, so this is just like very cool. Uh, oh my gosh. I'm like kind of fangirling, even though we spent three weeks together and we, <laughs> had probably like yeah lots of time <laughs> spent listening to Hamilton anyway so Keisha why don't you just like catch our listeners up on sort of how long you've had your guide dog and kind of a little just briefly sort of the process to, for you to get him yeah so um I'm in my early 20s and I've kind of always thought I would eventually pursue the like um apply for a guide dog because I, um, my own, uh, my own M orientation mobility skills. Um, I, I used a cane for a lot of years and, um, I kind of talked with a lot of my guide dog friends and a lot of them were like, well, I mean, cane, cane is great and it can be great for everybody. Um, but they're like, but maybe you would really enjoy the things that a guide dog has to offer. I noticed they were uh, walking a lot faster they were they were able to kind of have this level of this next level of confidence that was really cool and um, I know some cane users who have that as well but I also grew up on a farm and I love dogs and I just was like I mean how cool to have a partner in crime like this um, 
to carry out my everyday tasks. And so anyway, so I did my research a little bit about the schools, but it was pretty clear to me um, fairly soon that I was going to go with the seeing eye. Um, I, I do really appreciate that the seeing eye has a heavy focus on praise based training um, as opposed to treat based training. And I'm going to ask Sarah to explain that a little bit uh, later, but um, uh, th that was one of the reasons. And uh, also you, you get to keep your dog for their entire life. And that's very important to me. Like they're, they become your actual dog once they, once you are matched and trained with them. And um, that's important to me because I have a very strong relationship with my furry family and my dog is definitely my family as well as my work partner and everything else. But when the harness comes off at the end of the day, he's, you know, being my snuggle buddy and my play playmate as much as anything else. So, um, so that was kind of big. And then I went and uh, filled in the application, did all that. It was quite a, quite a process um, in terms of like paperwork and kind of um, making sure you're medically ready for it and uh, reference checking and uh, O&M, like just kind of um, the seeing eye, of course, wanted to check what your O&M level was at, um, kind of what your daily roots are just to kind of, because they're, they're trying to make sure you're ready for a dog. And they're also trying to make sure like, they can match you with the right dog for you. So there's a lot of pieces involved um, in that application. And uh, yeah, so once that application had been completed, I, I waited, I think it was about a year or so by the time it kind of all came to fruition. And then I was called uh, by the seeing eye and they said, we have a dog for you. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then I got to fly, they flew me down to New Jersey to Morristown, New Jersey, and um, and then uh, fairly fairly soon, they, you don't you don't meet your dog. It's not like you get off the plane and they're like, ah, here's your dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's like a uh, a few days where you meet your instructor, you meet your classmates, uh, you go on like Juno walks, which is where the instructor pretends to be your dog, and they learn about your pace and your pull, and they teach you some basic commands, and they kind of gauge who you are as a person. Um, I know Sarah, like I remember Sarah interviewing me about my life. Sarah, how did you get into this role of being a guide dog trainer? And I, you introduced yourself as a mobility and, or uh, a mobility guide dog trainer is all, are all guide dog trainers, mobility instructors, or is it the same thing or is it a different thing? It can be different across different organizations. And I'm not super familiar with the training of guiding eyes or guide dogs for the blind, guide dogs for the desert. There's tons of schools in the United States and across the world, but there are some schools that either just do matching the dog with the person. And there are other instructors who just do dog training. So as a guide dog mobility instructor at the seeing eye specifically, I did both of those things. I trained the dog through the whole process and I got to match, make the match at the end of the day, which was so satisfying because I got to see the process in its entirety. And I'm going to just add this in here because I should have done it before, but I, like I said before, I'm a former guide dog mobility instructor for the seeing eye. And 
while I had an amazing time there, I am not a representative of the organization. And I, these opinions are my own Mm -hmm. and my own experiences. Okay, cool. So how did you get into that job to begin with though? Cause that's like always interesting for me to find out why people chose to work with the blind community in general, actually. So it's kind of a long and winding story, but it comes down to a couple of things. When I was in college, I went to Rutgers University and they have a puppy raising club there, a seeing eye puppy raising club. And I had a really tough exam and because I was a biochemistry major, which I'm obviously using a lot these days. And <laughs> I had a really tough exam and I was missing my dog at home. And I grew up in New Jersey, so I could have just gone home, but I didn't want to. I wanted to pet somebody else's dog. And I went there and I fell in love with these puppies. So I started puppy sitting and puppy raising as a volunteer for the organization. And I'll get to that in just a second. The Then I graduated with a degree in biochemistry and I went into biopharmaceuticals. And while I love the process of science and it's something that like, I love science and I love all of the things that come along with it. I was doing quality control at a biopharmaceutical company and it was very rote. It was the same thing every single day. It was the same thing. And if mistakes were made, that was really bad. (laughs) You don't want mistakes made when you are checking the quality of something. And I had this moment where I realized I wanted to be, I wanted to work with people more directly. And I wanted to see the process more as a whole, rather than being just a small cog in the machine. And while I was working, I was still volunteering as a puppy raiser for the seeing eye. And I was like, well, I've always really loved doing this and I love dogs. And I think I'd be fit for a teaching position. I was training people at the biopharmaceutical company. So I was like, why not? I'll apply because once I got the job, which was shortly after that, I I came to realize like most of the instructors were not dog trainers before they came to the seeing eye. There were people who were snowboarding instructors, like traveling mu- musicians. There were people in finance and on Wall Street and wow. people from all different backgrounds who came to do this. Because at the end of the day, being a GDMI, a guide dog mobility instructor, is a people job. Mm. So they look for people who can communicate and who can work with everybody from all walks of life and train dogs. So you got to be an animal lover, but more so you have to be a people person. Mm. That's so cool. Okay. So you did puppy raising. Tell us, tell us about the process then. How, how does the dog get ready to be a guide dog? So I'll start from puppyhood, little baby puppyhood, because I actually volunteered at their breeding center for a while too, as a volunteer, not as an employee. The puppies are born in Chester, New Jersey, and they are with their mamas and taken extraordinarily well care of. 
because they are in this state-of-the-art facility. You have to wear scrubs to go in there. They don't want any diseases or anything to affect this population of dogs that live there. The Mom and dad dogs get walks daily. They practice agility. They do a whole bunch of different things to keep their minds sharp while they're, because they're not guiding while they're being our breeding stock. And then when the mothers are ready to whelp and have their puppies, they almost immediately start working with these puppies. So they're very used to human touch and having their paws handled and being picked up as puppies. And when they're about four weeks old, they start going into these playrooms. And in the playrooms, they play this CD that has all kinds of just ridiculous sounds. <laughs> to just get the puppies used to all of the sounds. So it's like a lawnmower will play and a thunderstorm will play. And it's a, there's a crying baby one, except it sounds like you're in a nursery of like a hundred crying babies. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know any puppy that goes through this, but, <laughs> um, uh, and they play all kinds of, they play traffic sounds. So they start desensitizing the puppies to this and they give them different toys to play with, different things to walk over. And they have volunteers that come in who get to handle the puppies and make sure that every one of them is used to having their ears looked in and their paws touched. So that happens from zero weeks to seven weeks. And then at seven weeks old, they get delivered to their puppy raisers. Puppy raising is another volunteer opportunity for the seeing eye all across New Jersey and in some places in Pennsylvania, New York, and Delaware. And as a puppy raiser, your primary job is to give these dogs lots of love and basic exposure to prepare them for guiding in the future. Skipping forward, as a guide dog mobility instructor, we can do a lot. We can train a lot of skills and behaviors, but if a dog hasn't seen something that like a wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. Like, <laughs> hasn't seen that before. And they're like, whoa, that's scary. And somebody lives in front of a um, somewhere that's selling cars and has one of these out every day and the dog's terrified of it. There's not much we can do. Or mm -hmm. on smaller scales, if the dog hasn't seen statues before, or if the dog hasn't been to a grocery store and they're not used to shopping carts. So backing it back up as puppy raisers, we take the dogs almost everywhere. There are some limitations because they're not service dogs yet and they're not serving the people who are raising them. And the laws in New Jersey allow puppy raisers to take their service dogs in training places, but the seeing eye asks that their puppy raisers always call beforehand and get permission to bring their dogs. So I raised three puppies for the seeing eye and they've been to baseball games with me, museums, they've been to grocery stores, they've been to movie theaters, everything. Everything that we all regularly do with just a couple of exceptions for safety reasons. So they can't go to zoos with puppy raisers and they can't go on airplanes. Is there like a checklist that at when you are the puppy raiser that you're supposed to try to expose them to? Like, do you actually have a list of places? <laughs> um, it's not a checklist per se, but you meet either weekly, every other week, or once a month with a puppy club, which is 
as exciting as it sounds and you all together <laughs> and you work on their basic obedience, sit down, rest, which is our command for stay. And this puppy club also puts together exposure opportunities. So I know there are clubs in Pennsylvania that go to see um, hot air balloon mm. like festivals, or sometimes you'll go for just a mall walk with a ton of puppies and <laughs> you're in the mall and there's puppies from 16 weeks old until puppies that are 18 months old. Mm. And you get to do this. It's a really great community. It's a lot of people who are super passionate about kind of loving and letting go because at around 16 to 18 months, that can vary depending on the year, but as the dog approaches like this mature age, they get returned to the seeing eye and the puppy raisers have to say goodbye. When the puppy raiser gives them back, that is the last time that they will see the dog in person unless the dog is not set for the program and is not a good candidate to be a guide dog. Oh, that must be so hard to give the dog back. It, it is, but I try not to think of it as right. We're not giving the dog up per se, but like you said, we're giving the dog back. This is, you raised this puppy for a purpose and you Mm -hmm. raised this puppy to be a guide dog. It was literally born and raised for this. So it is bittersweet. I have been on that end of the leash crying my eyes out because I'll miss this dog that I've really grown to love. And I have also been on the side of the feeling of such satisfaction that like you helped contribute to making this dog into something so cool and something that like an animal that is helping somebody genuinely. Really enhancing lives. Yeah. Or so in terms of this training, so when people hear that training a guide dog can be anywhere from $35,000 to like $75,000, like I, plus, like keep going if you want. A lot of people are really shocked by that number. Can you put that into perspective and like provide the scope of training that needs to go into each dog? So let's think if you were to get a dog from an animal shelter, you might pay $50 or you might pay $250. Or if you're getting a dog from a breeder, you might pay $1,000 or a couple more thousand dollars than that. And these breeders oftentimes are health testing. They are looking for the best matches for their dogs to make healthy, happy puppies. And then they raise the dogs for seven weeks. So we think of right there, that first part of their life, the seeing eye does all that. They health test their dogs. They make sure that these dogs are healthy, temperamentally, just the nicest dogs that you can get. And behaviorally are dogs that are suited for guide dog work. So you think in this perspective, it's a couple thousand dollars right there from the first zero weeks to seven weeks. Then they go to puppy raisers who they spend 24 seven with. And while the puppy raisers aren't being paid to do this, they are putting in so much time and effort to care for this dog. And all during that, the dog's still regularly going to the vet. They're being fed, they're being taken care of. Then we hit 18 months and the dog goes back to the seeing eye. And that's when we start kind of our whole program. 
So they go to the CNI, they get adjusted to living in the kennels, which can be a pretty significant adjustment. So they're again, living in kind of this state of the art facility for them. They're being health tested again to make sure that structurally they are sound and ready to pull someone around for the next 10 years, we hope. (laughs) They get spayed or neutered if they're not going to be breeders. And then they meet their instructor. That's where I, I finally actually come in. So we've already invested, right? thousands of dollars into these dogs in the first cup, like the first year and a half of their lives. And then we start this highly specialized training for them. Each instructor is assigned what we call a string of dogs. And that's just the group of the dogs that they'll work with between each class. As an instructor, you have four months of dog training and one month of class. And that cycle just repeats over and over. So you get assigned your dogs and you usually get assigned four to six new dogs, dogs who have not been trained for guide dog work before. And then you'll usually get two or more holdovers. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So for these new dogs who are being trained, they are learning how to stop at curbs, how to check for traffic, which is not literally looking both ways, but if a car is pulling in front of somebody, how to stop and back up or scoot forward or protect the person that they're working with. Uh, We're teaching them how to look for overhead obstacles. We're teaching them how to move around obstacles or anything in their way. And they get trained. Every dog gets at a minimum an hour training a day. So if we have eight dogs, each one of them gets an hour's worth of training a day, sometimes plus or minus some trips are shorter, just like a trip to the grocery store might be longer or shorter, depending on what you're getting. Um, And some trips are much longer because some people walk a whole lot uh, (laughs) and they get that five days a week with the instructors and for four months straight. So then you think of all of this highly specialized training and I am being paid for this or I was being paid for this. And that's where so much of that comes in because they have received more training than most dogs see in their entire lives. Well, and I'm kind of curious about that training. Like you, you went into it a little bit just now about the training when you come back, when the uh, dog comes back from puppy raisers, but like, can you, can you kind of describe like what a, what a session might look like with a dog. So I'll go in kind of top level and I'll bring us down. Top level, the training of the dogs actually looks a lot like the class that Keisha went through at the Seeing Eye. First, we start on the driveway, literally the driveway of the Seeing Eye, and we are showing them everything that they need to do. We're showing them how to turn. We're showing them how to pull the dog pulling into the harness, I mean. We're showing them how to do obedience appropriately if they're a little excited because it's their first time with this new person. And we're really teaching a lot of that. The next month and a half or so, we're on routes, which are predefined paths that we take through Morristown. And on these routes, we're still doing a lot of showing to the dog. This is kind of where that praise versus treats uh, conversation comes Mm -hmm. in because Mm -hmm. when we show the dog, if they do something right, depending on 
the kind of dog and the personality of the dog will give them a, yeah, good boy, good job. Or sometimes if a dog gets a little too excited with something like that, we'll give them, oh, nice job, buddy. Good. I really liked that. So we give them this nice, warm, affectionate praise and we pet them and we love on them rather than giving them a treat for getting to the curb and stopping. The way that we'll show them how to do something again is if they make a mistake, we go, oh, nobody. Sometimes they might get a pop on the collar and we'll move back and we'll repeat until they get it right so that we can show them, I don't want you to do what you just did, but I do want you to do it like this. And we can teach them in that way. And dogs are good at figuring out that pattern after a while. So we go on the roots, we do a lot of showing, and as we're going through the roots, we try and show less and expect more out of the dogs. At the end of our time on the roots, so that's maybe six-ish weeks, we have a midterm blindfold in which the instructor wears a complete blindfold and the dog takes them through a predetermined route for the midterms. It's not a test, even though it sounds like it. It is very much a, it shows you how much the dog knows and what they need to continue working on. Some dogs at midterms are, are total naturals. And it seems like they've been doing this for way longer than six weeks. And some dogs at midterms need a little bit more time, which we have built into our schedule to work on these skills, to make sure they're really, really sharp for when we're ready to match these dogs with people. After midterms, we start doing freelance work. So again, it really, it's a mirror, it's a mirror image of what class looks like for the people. We go yeah. into freelance and we start doing everything that a person would be doing in their day-to-day -day lives. We go to grocery stores, we take walks that might be a meandering walk around the block, like an exercise walk. We take walks to and from a store because the routes that we were doing previously are usually loops. So now we start introducing like, nope, we don't continue on the loop. We get to a destination. We do what we're doing at our destination. We come back. We teach them how to ride escalators. We teach them, we keep brushing up their skills and making sure that everything is really strong. And oftentimes that culminates in going to New York City. And, <laughs> and you know, not all dogs, much like people, not all dogs are suited for New York City, but it's a great way to test kind of how confident they are in their work and what is the upper limit of what they can handle. And like I said, not all people need a dog that goes into New York City every day, but our New York City students need those dogs. So we check for things like that. Um, once we hit that kind of goalpost, we have our final blindfold. So now it is no longer a predetermined walk. And I don't think I mentioned this before, but when we do our blindfold walks, the instructor is wearing a blindfold, but our manager is over our shoulder, making sure that the dog is as safe as we've trained it to be and making sure that nothing goes awry. Because when I wear a blindfold, even though I've done it multiple times, I still need to get like my sea legs under me. It is a big change going from sighted to wearing a blindfold. Mm -hmm. So um, our managers are there because to make sure that we are safe and these dogs are safe. And 
they are because we trained them to be that way. Because I don't want to get hit by a car as much as anybody else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What can what can go wrong during training? Like, what uh, are, are there some dog personalities that just can't be trained, or they or what? What's a sign that a dog's like? You know what? I don't want to work. Like, this yeah. is not what I'm down for. So there's a wide range, right? Every single dog is an individual, and while our training follows the same path. Okay, we need to do what works best for each kind of dog to get there. A lot of the things that knock a dog out of training are dog distraction, and which means when the guide dog sees another dog, whether that's another guide dog or a pet dog on the street, they lose responsibility they stop being able to work effectively and keep their person safe. Now, most dogs are distracted by other dogs. That's not to say that a dog who looks at another dog can never be a guide dog, right? That's not true. But the dogs that are unsafe when they see another dog are dogs that are not suited to be guides. Other things that we are pretty big on the list of like no-nos are dogs that are eliminating inappropriately. If they are going to the bathroom at a time that we are not expecting them to, it is both frustrating and embarrassing. And I've been there with dogs before who we've gone into a store and I've given them 20 minutes to go to the bathroom and they chose not to. And we walked into the store and they went in the store. Like a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> Usually you get the kid to a bathroom though. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but part of that difficulty, right? Sometimes if a dog is ill, we can cut them some slack on this. But there are dogs who just kind of like to pee on things. And we don't like that. <laughs> no not appropriate for a working dog. It's fine if you're a pet dog and you're peeing on a fence post and a fire hydrant. It is not fine if you are living your professional life and your dog (laughs) is going at a time that you're either you don't know because they can be sneaky about it and they can Mm -hmm. go while they're walking and somebody goes, oh my God, is that dog going to the bathroom? And you're like, what? Yeah. So that's another big one. Inappropriate elimination is major. And then I'd say the other end of the dog distraction is there are some dogs that would just much rather be a couch potato and (laughs) don't really want to go for the walk and don't really want to do the work. And when they put the harness on, they go, don't know about this today, tomorrow, but tomorrow never comes in that way. And I think the final one is health issues. If a dog has a health issue that the seeing eye knows about it, they're not going to place that guide dog with a person because it would really stink to be the person in class where you go, all right, your dog is healthy, no worries. Your dog's healthy, no worries. Your dog's healthy, no worries. And then they get to you and they're like, and you have to give your dog a pill every day for this Mm -hmm. particular issue. So we don't want to put kind of an undue burden on a particular person for a dog. And health issues do come up. That is the nature of dogs eventually. And it does unfortunately happen with some students. But if the seeing eye can prevent that or is 
aware that there is a health issue, that dog will also be dropped from the program. So those are probably the four big ones. It's really cool to hear that one of them is the dog not wanting to work because I think there's a bit of a misconception in the public sometimes, oh, those poor dogs, they're, you know, they have to work. They don't just get to be dogs. Mm. So the fact that you're, you're already um, screening out the ones who don't want to, and I would imagine that most dogs get excited when it's time to work, would you say? (laughs) Yeah. I I definitely say so. And there are some dogs that are with students that are more subdued about it, right? Not every dog dives into the harness. There are some dogs that casually walk over and go, okay, mom, okay, dad, I'm ready for this. But the dogs that the seeing eye places want to work, they were born and raised and trained for this. And the dogs that don't want to do it, don't do it. They go home to be either with puppy raisers or people who adopt them. So it's, it's always fun to take a dog out who really, really loves it too. Much like Bo. I'll give Bo a shout out here. <laughs> well, he like, yeah. And then the other thing, like, well, he like will chase me out. If he know if things I'm going to the door, he'll be like, yeah, all right, I'm coming. Even if I'm just going like to do laundry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Funny boy. I'm curious like about the bonding, like you were mentioning the, the pleasing, they want to please you. I can't remember what you called it versus giving them treats. Praise. Praise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you're their train. Well, first of all, they've been taken from their puppy raiser person and now they're paired with you and you're coming in week, you know, week, like every day during the week and working with them and they want to oh. please you but then they're transferred to the person who's blind. And now like, how does that transfer on or do they just want to please? Are they just dog? Like, you know, we call people pleasers. Are they the dog version of that? Can I speak to this (laughs) really quickly? Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I just, I think I actually can speak to this a little bit. And then I want to hear what Sarah has to say, because when I was matched with Bo, I remember he, first of all, he screamed for Sarah for like three days straight scream scream not an exaggeration (laughs) he was the loudest dog in the class and all the dogs were a little bit like what the heck's going on we miss like why is the trainer like ignoring us but Bo was like one of the like most (laughs) like screamy dogs and he was anytime he saw Sarah he would like even in harness or like on the leash I would feel him like jerk towards her walking over like when we were on roots, like he would be looking back, like, why is who, what is this person who's holding my harness? Why are you not like working <laughs> yeah. right now? And like, it, it got to the point where we even had to like, I had to be like trained a little bit by someone else for a little, like a little sec. And then we had to like work on our bonding. But and I, I remember being like, oh my God, like, when's this dog going to love me? And Sarah said, she's like, you know, that, that loyalty that he has for me, that love, he he's gonna like you're gonna see that transfer to you and and you're gonna it's gonna happen I was like okay and (laughs) it did so I want to hear Sarah's side now (laughs) they're they're like I said before dogs are all individuals and I've had dogs that I have handed to somebody and that dog instantly fell in love with this other person and I was kind of like excuse me (laughs) (laughs) no kidding (laughs) that feels a little rude but sometimes the dogs get to the people and they go this is my final destination like I I know I'm with you and I 
don't have to get pulled away from anyone again because we can't explain it to them. And it's happened twice. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely some, this is a personification, but there's definitely some like anxiety that Mm -hmm. these dogs get where they're like, oh my gosh, you're handing me off again. Um, The good thing about class is that they get to stay in the rooms with the students. And that really increases the bond much quicker. But some dogs like Bo have the opposite reaction where they're like, I just got pulled away from my person. How dare you? And it's, it can be, it can be funny. A a lot of the times we try and laugh about it because as an instructor, I can say, I don't go home with you. And I'm not always going to be over your shoulder for your dog to look back at me. Mm. But there's also moments where it's frustrating and can be disheartening and Mm. it can be difficult where you're like, I'm feeding this dog and he's sleeping in my room and I'm brushing him every day and I'm petting him all the time and I'm telling him he's a good boy and so handsome and I love him and he hates me. Mm. (laughs) And that's sometimes- tolerates me, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. we're roommates right? <laughs> so that can be hard that transition is one of the most difficult things in class because it's a transition for the dog right they've just left this trainer who they've been getting all their affection from for the past four months at a minimum or sometimes on the flip side with students you know they had Uh, an incredible dog that maybe they lost suddenly, or even they didn't. This dog lived out its whole working life and retired wonderfully and is, was just a great phenomenal dog. And they get their second dog and they go, "Mm, but you're not my last dog. Mm -hmm. Like, am I going to be able to love you like my last dog? Am I going to be able to work as smoothly as me and my last dog did? So there's a little give and take on both ends. So from a new student who's getting their dog and I've had students who have never had a dog before. And they're like, I don't know how to even really interact with a dog, but I know I want this. And you're like, okay, like here's, I can tell you everything I know on how to get this dog to like you, but it just takes time. Mm -hmm. My, I had a guide dog for just a short, like a year and three months. And Mm -hmm. I went into it I was afraid of dogs my entire life. Mm-hmm. So when I was matched with my dog, the first thing I went to GDB, so guide dogs for the blind, and, and it is a treat based system. So the first thing I was instructed to do was to give her a treat from my hand, which I had never in my life had an animal eat out of my hand. <laughs> and I started to cry. Like she kind of took the, the treat a bit aggressively. It, it didn't hurt, but it was just it wasn't gentle mm-hmm. and it freaked me out. And I started to cry. Like, so I had some real issues during training, like just trying to get comfortable with living in the same room with the dog. And like, when I would play with her, she would bark at me and then I would be scared and like so many yeah. issues that she must've been so confused. Like you've taken me from a trainer who loves me <laughs> and put me in the room with this person who's like freaked out of me. I yeah, no wonder we had troubles anyways. <laughs> Well, and that kind of, that, like, Sean's story kind of leads me to, to kind of want to ask you about what the matching process is like on your end. Yeah, so we have, 
we're taking notes every day, every single trip that we are on, we are taking notes and we're paying attention overall to what I'll say is pace, pull, and personality. It breaks down a little finer than that, but for this conversation, pace, pull, personality. We need to know how fast the dog walks, how strong the dog pulls, and kind of what kind of dog this is. Is it a dog that will be suited to live on a farm? It'll be, is it a dog that can live in a city? Is it a dog that can do both? Is it a dog that if they walk past basketball courts every day, they're going to lose their mind because they're ball obsessed and they have to play? Or is it a dog that if they have to walk past a flock of pigeons, are they able to do that every day or seagulls or what have you? Is it a dog that can go into a hospital and be fine with wheelchairs and crutches and beeping and strange smells or a dog that can work with a teacher who has young children in their classroom who might be screaming and pulling and doing things that adults might not do. Or maybe this dog works in a courtroom and has to be quiet and lay down and be completely unseen, which is the ideal for most of our situations. But kind of, we need to find where this dog fits. On our midterm and final blindfolds, we take rating systems for our dogs and we say, this dog walks this fast, pulls this strong, is distracted by this, that, or the other thing, is this confident in its work, and I think they'll fit really well here and here. Our managers, at the same time, are looking through all of the applicants for the seeing eye, both new applicants and people returning for their subsequent dog, their second, third, fourth, seventh, 14th, whatever amount of dogs they're on. They are looking at all of the dogs on the team. So like I said before, an instructor's training uh, six to eight dogs at a time, and there's usually five to six instructors on a team. So let's say we have a, a pool of about 40 dogs to choose from, and we need to fill up a class of about 20 people. We, our manager is going to look for the people who fit not just one dog, but could get any of two or three dogs. We want, as students come in and we meet them in person, we'll give them a Juno walk. Like Keisha said, I pretend to be a dog and I pull. And while I'm teaching Keisha and while I'm teaching students the mechanics of guide dog work, I'm also evaluating how fast they are, how strong they are, and I'm interviewing them so that I know what kind of personality this dog needs to have. And every student that comes in has two or three dogs lined up for them as potentials. And once they come to class, we decide what is the absolute best fit that we can give them. Students who are more open to having any breed, any color, any gender of dogs make our lives really easy because we go, okay, now I can find just like the most perfect fit I can for you. And students that say, I want a female yellow lab golden cross, which mm -hmm. we get that request. We try and encourage them to be open. You know, a lab golden cross is very similar to a lab and is very similar to a golden. Would you be open to that? Is there a different, there's not really a difference between the personalities of a yellow and a black lab, but 
there can be really good reasons why people ask for something specific. So when we get that, we still try to make sure we have two to three dogs for them, but it might make the waiting process longer. And it might take more time to find the right dogs for them because we just might not have enough to say confidently, like we're going to make the best match possible. Then when students come in for class, we do our Juno walks and we select out of our groupings, what is the perfect dog? What is the dog that we think will fit best? And in Keisha's case, this was really fun for me because I knew Bo was raised on a hobby farm, much like Keisha's family has, mm -hmm. and that he was on paper, Bo had so many similarities in his puppy raising exposure, as well as the correct pace and pull. And I was like, I think this is just right. And <laughs> when Keisha came in, I was like, oh yeah. I was like, <laughs> I knew. I took her for a Juno walk and I was like, this is the dog. <laughs> Sometimes it's not that easy. Sometimes we're like, oh, you are, you walk way faster than I thought you were going to walk. Maybe the day that they went for a Juno walk in their interview was really bad weather or it was icy out or they weren't feeling well. They were recovering from an illness or anything like that. And because of that, they were walking more slowly or maybe they were nervous and they were walking more quickly or they were holding back, which means they're holding onto the harness really tightly because they're nervous about the situation. And all of those things can contribute to what it's like when a person comes into the seeing eye. And we try and remind them like, you come in, take a deep breath, imagine you're at home, just walk like you would normally walk. And don't try and outwalk me because I walk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also really funny because so Bo's a very big dog. Sarah is uh, sh shorter I'm than me. Short. Um, <laughs> I'm five feet tall. <laughs> and I'm, I'm five feet nine. And uh, so it was funny because uh, Sarah was like, yeah, he's been working with me. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be retraining him a little bit on, on height. Uh, he's going to have to <laughs> overhang to the height. <laughs> and he did beautifully, of course, but it was hilarious. It was pretty funny. Like <laughs> there's a lot of like, stop put your hand up over your head. I'm like, he's going to walk you into this, but we need him to see because we, we need, occasionally we need the dog to make the mistake so we can show them mm. that it's not the right choice. And we can go back and show them how to do it correctly. So we can praise them and go, nice, good job. Like that's exactly what I wanted. And for me, I surprisingly had trained a number of dogs for very tall people. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was always funny when I would meet these people and I'd be like, hello from down here. <laughs> <laughs> I trained this dog and you're, you are taller than the doors in this building <laughs> and I can't reach the top of the doors. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask like if there's any like natural dog instincts and you kind of like mentioned uh, dog distraction because you know, they're pack animals and whatnot, but um is there any natural dog instincts that are, that take a particular skill or whatever strategy or are kind of challenging to train against, but you, but you regularly do because they're dogs and they're not, you know, they're not machines. I think dog distraction is the big one. Like I said, most dogs are distracted by other dogs. 
And most dogs are distracted by birds or bunnies or squirrels, small animals kind of prey. Some dogs are distracted by leaves and get very excited in the fall. (laughs) Um, Some dogs are really distracted by food on the ground and will dive for food. And it just depends on how strong this impulse is and how strong this instinct is. Because oftentimes we can show the dog, no, you're not gonna get away with that. And we usually do that through correction. And the thing is, if we're consistent with the corrections and we're fair, right? So if a dog has done something really naughty, they might get a bigger correction. But if a dog does something, if a dog looks at another dog, that's not illegal, right? And like Keisha said, the dogs are not robots. So the dogs will look at other dogs and will look at things that are distracting them. Big sounds, you know, somebody's screeching, they might hear bells or keys and think it's a collar or a tag. But if we're consistent and we're fair with our corrections, we can eventually teach the dogs that we can give a warning kind of fleet, which is just a German sound of displeasure. And we could go, no, you're not going to do that today. Like, don't you dare. And I think a lot of both instructors and graduates of and guide dog users as a whole kind of, you get this script that you say to your dog where you're like, don't you even look at that dog? Don't you even try? And you kind of come up with what you'll say as like this warning to be like, I, I know right? We try and convince these dogs we can read their minds. I know you're going to try and go for that dog. So I've caught you already. And we teach our students how to recognize all of these preemptive behaviors that the dog gives. So you could go, all right, did you feel that? That's what distraction feels like. That's what it feels like when your dog has perked up and puffed up and is prancing down the street to go, I'm tougher than this other dog. And as soon as you feel that, if you address it, and if you address it with good timing and a fair correction, we can tell the dog, no, you don't have to. We're going to walk around this dog, or we're going to walk around this distraction confidently and smoothly. And it eventually all comes together. And I actually want to give you the flip side of that, Keisha, the the seeing eye does an amazing job in their breeding program. And this is not necessarily a natural instinct that you see in these breeds being German shepherds, Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, and lab golden crosses. But the seeing eye does a really nice job of breeding in an off switch, if you will. So a German shepherd who can lay down in an office and relax for a couple of hours is not something you see in the population of German shepherds of pet owners. Wow. Or like labs tend to be really excitable and really these bouncy exuberant dogs. And the seeing eye has done a lovely job of creating a breeding lines that are dogs who can coexist in the human world in a way that pet dogs do not do well with. So- like, and I, and I always, I say to people, people will be like, oh, your dog is so cool. I have to get a German Shepherd. And I'm like, oh, no, no, <laughs> maybe, like maybe, but also my dog is going to, he's spoiling you because he's, he's a really good boy and he's well-trained and he's like, 
yeah <laughs> this is a very uh special talk <laughs> this has been so interesting i think people are going to really enjoy hearing all that you have shared with us sarah thank you so much for being here and thanks keisha for bringing her oh i'm so i'm so grateful thank you yeah thank you so much sarah i loved working with you and i loved hear i love hearing you tell about the whole process and yeah i it was an absolute pleasure to be here and i'm gonna hold everybody for one more minute so i can just get on my soapbox okay if you are in the public and you see a guide dog approaching with their handler a please do not distract it i know that's a common one right we hear that a lot don't distract the guide dogs but here's your secret b if you also have a dog please just say something. Just say Mm. out loud, hi, I have a dog. Mm. I feel like this is the secret one that we don't tell people enough, right? Don't distract the dogs, but do let a handler know that if you have a dog with you, just say hi. Yes. So that's a great piece of advice. I'm, I'm standing here with my dog. He's under control because gosh, does that make such a difference? If you're like, Ooh, I hear a dog barking up ahead. Is it going to come at me? Is it going to be naughty? Like, do I have to be worried? Should I turn around? Should I find another way to go? So this is my number two tip for when a guide dog handler team is approaching. Just say hi. Let them know where you are. I've seen that so many times, even in Morristown, New Jersey, which has guide dogs in it all the time, (laughs) literally (laughs) all the time. There's maybe two weeks a year where the guide dogs have calmed down. And that's not even true because there are tons of grads in town too. But people who stand silently while their dogs are being mean. Mm. <laughs> so that's my little high horse. I'm sorry to No, do thanks for that. I, I wish, yeah, I, totally. That would have helped me when I had my guide dog because that was that's super frustrating to not know. And especially if you do have a bit of a fear of dogs. <laughs> you hear, yeah. you know one's there and you don't know if there's a human with them. It's very scary. For sure. I loved being here and talking to you guys and guide dogs are amazing. Like I love dogs and I love the people that I got to work with. It was such a pleasure training Keisha and getting to know her. And (laughs) now I can say that she's my friend and we text each other regularly. It doesn't (laughs) happen, (laughs) but Keisha, you are great. And thank you so much for having me. And Sean, thank you for your excellent questions. Yeah, no, thanks so much for being here. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast, like, subscribe, leave us a rating, and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca. And also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.